Welcome to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Jackie Lupman, and as always, we're your guide to connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today we're talking about additional details in the trial of Julian Assange, the trajectory of information warfare, and the continued denial of rights for the people of Puerto Rico. And later on in our show, starting at 3.20 p.m. Eastern Time, we'll be opening the phone lines to you. But before we can move on... Well, neoliberal French pretty boy Emmanuel Macron won re-election to another five-year term in France, ending a bitter contest with far-right Marine Le Pen. Macron admitted in his acceptance speech that he didn't win because people liked his policies, but because people hated Le Pen and the far right that she represents. He said, many of our compatriots voted for me not out of support for my ideas, but to block those of the extreme right. I want to thank them, and I know that I have a duty towards them in the years to come. Indeed, for Muslims in France, voting for Macron was assuredly a bitter pill to swallow, as it was Macron who implemented policies that the far right actually embraced, from dissolving anti-racist organizations claiming they were promoting anti-white racism. Uh, Instead of documenting racial and ethnic inequalities, he cut funding for research into those issues. Instead of addressing structural discrimination, he replaced it with symbolic, cheap, and meaningless measures like unveiling a few diverse street names while demanding that Muslim institutions sign a charter, basically pledging their loyalty to France if they don't want to be considered extremists and criminalized by the state. And let's not forget the so-called green tax on fuel that sparked the massive yellow vest protests that lasted for months and then the equally unpopular pension reform he tried to implement that only drove more people into the streets. Macron didn't win the election because his administration had better policies than Le Pen's proposals. He won because for many people in France, it's as if the devil you know is better than the devil you don't. Le Pen and her far-right reactionaries are indeed as bad as you think, and we should know all about what that's like here in the U.S., No matter what anyone says, Macron's win wasn't a win for democracy. It was a win for lesser evilism, which is a loss for the people every time. In the Washington Post, the scribe of U.S. imperialism, at least one of them, reports that U.S. Secretary of State Anthony Blinken says that Russia is failing at its war aims, while Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin said that the United States wants to see, quote, Russia weakened to the point where it can't do things like invade Ukraine, end quote. Austin said the U.S. wants to see Ukraine remain a democratic country, able to defend its sovereign territory. The U.S. would also provide $713 million in foreign military financing to Ukraine and more than a dozen other nations to purchase new weapons, replenishing arms that were provided to Ukrainian forces. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky thanked the U.S. for its unprecedented assistance, But a top Ukrainian official has said that the country is hoping for far more, asking the Biden administration to provide at least $2 billion per month in emergency economic aid. 
If you haven't heard it said on this show before, I'll say it right now. Nobody in the U.S. government gives one warm damn about Ukraine. They don't care about the people of Ukraine. They don't care about Ukraine being a democratic country. This government only sees Ukraine as a means to an end, to do part of what Lloyd Austin said, to weaken Russia, but not so it won't invade Ukraine. No, the U.S. government wants to weaken Russia just to say it has weakened Russia. And for some reason, this government also believes that a weakened Russia will pave the way for a U.S. confrontation with China. If Ukraine were a democratic country that the U.S. respected, Barack Obama and Joe Biden wouldn't have sent John McCain and Victoria Nuland to cozy up with the opposition to Viktor Yanukovych when he put a pause on signing the trade deal with the European Union in 2014. If the U.S. government was concerned about the people of Ukraine, it would have perhaps offered to enter into a trade deal with the country or tried to compel the EU to promise that it would make up the losses that it was going to see if Ukraine signed that deal and cut trade ties with Russia, which was why Yanukovych paused signing the deal. He knew Ukraine could not afford those losses that no one was promising to pay for, and his people would suffer because of it. If the U.S. government cared about Ukraine being a democracy, Obama wouldn't have said in 2015 that the U.S. and the international community did not recognize the near-unanimous referendum votes of the Lugansk, Donetsk, and Crimea regions to be independent. Ukraine is a means to a destructive, psychopathic end for the U.S. government to destroy its former Cold War nemesis, Russia, and create the final standoff with its new Cold War adversary, China, so they would gladly spend obscene amounts of money pouring weapons into the country to weaken Russia. While in this country, homelessness is rising. Wages are still insultingly low for millions. Healthcare costs are unbearable. Student loan debt is still crushing. Housing is still unaffordable. At least 140 million people, almost half the population, lives in or near poverty. And the same politicians who approve more and more money and weapons to be sent to Ukraine cry poverty when it comes to meeting the needs of the people here. And Zelensky? Well, he wants even more. He wants the U.S. to provide him $2 billion a month in emergency economic aid. This government doesn't care about Ukraine. It doesn't care about you and me. And guess what? Zelensky doesn't care about you and me either. I said what I said. Follow Luke Bond Nation on Patreon.com slash Luke Bond Nation for lots of great content. And those are today's talking points, and you are listening to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Jackie Lukeman, sitting in for Sean Blackman, and as always, we're your guide to connecting the political, social, and economic movement shaping the world around us. By Any Means Necessary. And let's keep the movement moving on. As they say, we are happy to be joined today by Joe Lauria, editor of Consortium News, to talk about a range of topics that have been covered uh, in Consortium News that are really fascinating and important to what's going on around the world today. And Joe, thanks a lot for joining us. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you for having me back on. 
And, you know, the first thing I want to talk about, Joe, is some of the detail in the uh, extradition order uh, that has been sent to Priti Patel uh, in the U.K. regarding Julian Assange. Now, of course, you know, we know that uh, Assange is in prison, in Belmarsh prison, uh, and his extradition order has been sent to the British Home Secretary, Priti Patel, last Wednesday uh, by the Westminster Magistrates Court. But there is some pretty interesting detail about what could happen uh, in the four weeks that Patel has to decide whether to send Assange to the U.S. Uh, to face, you know, these ridiculous espionage and computer intrusion charges for uh, publishing, I don't know, facts on U.S. war crimes that could land him in prison for up to 175 years, and that's effectively a life sentence. So, What are some of the things that could happen in the four weeks uh, that Patel is deciding uh, whether to extradite Assange uh, or not? Well, Assange's lawyers have the opportunity in these four weeks to make submissions to Patel, the Home Secretary. In other words, they can appeal directly to her to try to convince her not to send Assange to the United States. What had happened was... Um, let's we go to the beginning. The, this magistrate's court back in January of 2021 decided not to extradite Assange to the United States based on his mental conditions and his propensity to suicide, combined with the condition of U.S. prisons, in particular the special administrative measures, which is the harshest form of isolation in the U.S. penal system. So the judge decided that uh, he shouldn't go to the U.S. because he would most likely commit suicide even before he left Britain. If he knew he was going to be extradited, he might then and there commit suicide. Well, the U.S. appealed that decision and they went to the high court. And what they did was after that decision, they made promises or what they call diplomatic assurances that they would not send him to the most harsh Uh, prison conditions, and they would give him adequate mental and physical medical care. Now, the high court decided just on the basis of those promises, U.S. promises, that he should go to the United States. So they overturned the lower court's decision. The high court never argued that the prisons in America are not hell holes. They didn't argue that he was, uh, his mental condition was such that he would likely commit suicide. They didn't even bother arguing that. They simply believed the American assurances, which was quite disturbing to the Assange side, obviously. So what they did is they went to the Supreme Court of the UK and asked to review that, and the court just declined. So the appeal by Assange of the high court's decision was rejected by the Supreme Court. They wouldn't even hear it, which was surprising to a lot of people. I thought they would at least go through the motions, make it look like they were giving him due process. Well, they didn't even bother doing that. So that automatically sent back the case to the Westminster Magistrates Court last Wednesday. And that was a formality what happened there. They simply had to get into the courtroom and say, we are sending this to the Home Secretary. There was no discussion there. There was no argument. There was no chance to appeal. So now the appeal will be directly to Patel and the one of Alessandra's uh, lawyers, Mark Summers. He stated in the courtroom, and I watched it on uh, video link up inside the courtroom, and he said that uh, this present hearing on Wednesday was not a place to put forward fresh evidence, but that the team, his team would make submissions to Patel on new developments in the Assange's case. And then he made a remark that has never not been explained. He said that that he would send 
serious submission, I'm quoting now, on U.S. sentencing practices to Patel. So obviously they're going to make some kind of argument about uh, the the sentence, the, the amount of years that are being talked about, up to 175 years, as a way maybe to convince her not to send Assange to the U.S. because he would get an unbelievably uh, uh, lengthy sentence for nonviolent crime, one that's really protected by the First Amendment, even though the Espionage Act is in conflict with the First Amendment because it doesn't say journalists cannot be prosecuted for for disseminating classified or defense secrets, which is what Assange did. But um, So they're going to make some kind of argument on the sentencing. But then there was another development that happened, and that's very significant to the whole case revolving around Assange's health. Again, it was not about whether he um, uh, broke the Espionage Act or any of that. It was all—he uh, was— barred from being sent to the U.S. because of his mental condition, and that was only overturned on these American province, uh, promises to give him medical care and phys and psychological care. But what happened was his, his health situation has changed dramatically since those promises were given by the Americans. On the very first day of the high court hearing in October, he suffered a mini stroke. And it's not clear when the court, the high court, learned about that stroke. The prison knew about it. We don't know when Assange's family learned about it. But when the high court decided in October that the, he would be extradited and sent it back to the magistrate's court, it was the next day, mm. the very next day that we learned from Stella uh, Morris at the time, now Stella Assange, that got married in the interim, she... Uh, said that he had gotten this stroke. So clearly the family knew about it. The high court had to know about this stroke. What does that do to these assurances about the medical care that they were promised? At that time, he had a different medical situation than he does now. And it's important to note that during the extradition hearing of September 2020, one of the defense witnesses, a, a psychologist, uh, testified, uh, someone who has gone off into the Alexandria Detention Center over there near Washington and Alexandria. Uh, that's where Assange would be held for the duration of the trial. Um, and they don't have a doctor on the premises. Wow. And we published in the Consortium News the his testimony at that point, that there is no doctor there. So how could he get adequate? If he gets a stroke, it's in the first minutes, an hour or so of a stroke that's most, or a heart attack. People know that you have to get treatment straight away. There's no doctor there. So what does that do to the American promises? So this is something that maybe the lawyers will bring up to Pretty Patel to try to convince her not to send her. But she's quite a harsh uh, and right-wing person who is very loyal, seems to not only the British establishment, but American interests. So it's highly unlikely she will not send Assange to the U.S., but that is probably what they might want to argue with her about. Hmm. And, you know, that one of the, the crucial questions, I think, um, that raises uh, that, that's been raised for me and what you just said was, when did the high court learn about the stroke? Because could it could a case be made uh, against the high court for knowing that his condition changed, that he suffered uh, a serious health issue and continued on with the proceedings anyway? Could could that potentially be something that you think the defense would uh, raise? Absolutely. They could raise that now with uh, Pretty Patel. They could say the high court knew about this stroke. They didn't know maybe that that was the first day of the hearing. They may have known on the second day. They certainly had to know uh, 
before they made their decision, which was December 10 of last year. So that was six weeks later. And as I said, it was made public the next day. So the high court had to know this. They also had to know there was no doctor in ADC where he's going to be held if he's sent. That's the first place he'll be held in the U.S. Um, Yes, they will definitely argue that. Now, if Patel decides, as most people think she will, that he is going to be sent to the United States, that's still not the end of the road. Then the Assange team can go back to the high court, to the very court that made that decision same judges, and appeal to them. They could make that appeal. In that appeal, they could also bring up this issue of the stroke. But they could also do what's called a cross appeal at that moment. And a cross appeal was to to argue the points of law that was in the initial lower court's decision that said not to extradite him. In that decision, the judge, Vanessa Bereza, decided that he shouldn't go, as I said, only for the medical reasons and the prison conditions. But the rest of the judgment was totally in line with the American arguments that he'd broken the Espionage Act, that that press freedom was unimportant in this case or wasn't being threatened, that the the American-British extradition treaty, which clearly bars uh, sending someone to the U.S. on a, for a political offense. The, the Sanjar lawyers are going to argue this is clearly a political offense and he shouldn't be extradited. So all of those issues could be brought up to the high court if the high court decides to hear this new appeal. And uh, since it was their own decision that will be being appealed here, it, we can't count that they're going to say yes. So they might do the same thing the Supreme Court did, which would say, no, we're not going to hear it. And that's the end of the road, the legal road in Britain. And there's nothing left for Assange at that point except to go to the European Court of Human Rights, where there have been cases, many extradition cases brought on issues like this, and they could uh, argue to that court. That takes a long time. Uh, There's no restraint, as far as I understand, on Britain keeping Assange in Britain for the duration of the time it will take for the European High Court, uh, sorry, European Court of Human Rights, rather, to make their decision. So they might just send him to the U.S. anyway. And even if they did keep him and the high court, sorry, the the European court decides in Assange's favor, they're not bound to follow that. They're not legally bound. It's up to each member state uh, of the European Council, which Britain still belongs to. It doesn't matter if they left Brexit. They still are a part of this system of the European Court of Human Rights, and they they could just ignore it. Uh, it would bring a lot of, you know, bad publicity for them. But I think Assange is such a high value target for the U.S. and British intelligence, for the U.S. and British uh, justice departments and Ministry of Justice, for the establishment. This is a guy that got to shut up and punish and make an example of, and really to punish and get revenge on him for the fact that he revealed their prima facie evidence of war crimes in the U.S. case and corruption of many, many governments around the world and other wrongdoing. And this is a guy that who did real journalism that the corporate media has ceased in general to do. They cover up for the uh, powers that commit war crimes and allowed uh, these guys to get away with it. 
but Assange didn't do that. He did his job. He uncovered this with the help of whistleblowers, of course, who leaked these classified documents. And Assange has to be shut down. We're living in a time of unprecedented censorship over the war in Ukraine, where people are getting kicked off their shows. They're getting banned on Twitter. They're having their archives removed from YouTube. We're, in Austria now, you can get a fifth, up to 50,000 euro fine if you share an article from RT with someone else on wow. social media. That in Britain, the Keir Steinman, the head of the Labour Party, the opposition leader, said that uh, anybody in the party who criticizes NATO could be kicked out of the party. And he's he named Jeremy Corbyn, the former leader of the party, and said that he was he would not be another an MP again if he criti if criticized NATO. And this is the environment that we're we're living in right now. It's something extraordinary, and uh, nobody's talking about it uh, except a few people, you know, dissidents who are the victims, and they're speaking out. So think of Assange. Why is it surprising that they're doing this when they are doing the same and worse to one journalist, Julian Assange? They are acting like they want total control over the narrative of this war and, and of their own uh, bad behavior. And Total, the word total is in totalitarian. They want even small outlets, you know, that have very little influence to crush them because they don't want a spark of dissent, which could lead to a fire. It's a, a very chilling time that we're going through. And what happened to Assange, what we've seen happening to Assange, nothing as bad as happening to any other individual journalist in terms of being put in prison and being psychologically tortured, according to the UN Rapporteur on Torture. But they're going after everybody now that who seems to defy them in small ways, whether to ban them on Twitter or to take down their shows, but they're still going after them. And it's part of a whole to me, the Assange case and this repression of free speech and free media in the West to protect the interests of very powerful people to do things that should be exposed to the public. Yeah, we're going to pick up on uh, that discussion on the other side of this break. We'll be right back on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Jackie Lukmond, and as always, we're your guide to connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And we continue to be joined by Joe Lauria, editor of Consortium News. And Joe, at the uh, end of the break, you're talking about how the people who are controlling the levers of power want to have a, a total uh, a control over information in, in the totalitarian sense. And you wrote a piece in Consortium News about that, where you talk about information warfare from, from prehistory to Ukraine. And you said a little earlier that, you know, you've never seen anything like the kind of control over uh, uh, information or the type of information war warfare as we're seeing now in regard to Ukraine. So I'm wondering if you could expound a little bit about that, because I, I have said that I have not seen the kind of coordinated, uh, completely airtight uh, uh, environment of flat out blatant lies that I've seen um, perpetuated by corporate media in regard to Ukraine. And I, I 
I'm glad to know that I'm not the only one who sees that this kind of information warfare is a is a very different beast from what we've seen before. But but help us explain why it's so different from previous uh, attempts at information warfare that we've seen. Right. Well, this was, first of all, a paper that I presented uh, to an online academic conference at the University of Johannesburg in South Africa. Uh, so what I did was, what I'm saying is it's the worst I've ever experienced in my lifetime, but I have given a history of what information warfare is and how it's changed over time, largely because of two things. One's technology changing. Uh, what's the technology used to communicate information warfare, and also the size and the level of education of populations. So I, by putting this history together, I have tried to put the context for what's going on with Ukraine. I'm not saying it's the worst in history, but it's the worst that I've ever experienced. And why it's so bad is because of the development of the technology. I give, for example, I just go back to the idea of beating drums. We talk about the beating drums of war. Well, that was a way of information warfare back in prehistoric time, and dance and chant and decorating the warriors. This was something. And then when civilization began, so-called, you know, we saw architecture huge monuments to the ruler that would frighten the population and the enemy. And this is the two, by the way, targets of information warfare, your own domestic population to get them to support you and your war effort, whether you, your, your war is based on a lie or not, like let's say the invasion of Iraq in 2003, totally now we know for sure, based on the lies of weapons of mass destruction in Iraq. And yet they, we had a frenzied, and this was the second worst until now, the frenzied population in the U.S., you know, dying for war against Iraq and the TV banging drums and flags and new music being written and uh, all kinds of extraordinary things like renaming uh, French fries, freedom fries, which, by the way, goes back to the First World War mm. when sauerkraut was renamed Liberty Cabbage. Wow. So this is a crazy this is a thing that's happened over and over again in the U.S., the putting of the Japanese Americans in concentration camps, basically, or camps anyway in the United States during the war. There's very harsh things that happened during warfare, and the U.S. has got a long history of it. So it was the printing press that really started to make a big difference from that period of where I say architecture um, was a, a vital part of submitting a message of power both at home and to the war. The arch, the triumphal arches in Rome, the lions on the gate of Babylon, these were all symbolic and uh, propagandistic tools in a very limited way because of the amount of, of technology that was available at the time. But when you got the printing press, of course, the newspaper became such an important way to get the population to support a war. And usually the newspaper proprietor has got his interests are close to the governing circles of a country. So they want the war. The government wants the war. Other industrialists want the war. You've got to portray your enemy as horrible, uh, eating babies as they did in the First World War, uh, saying this kinds of things, making it as terrible as possible. And of course, our side is good and pure. Now, both sides do this in war. Uh, and, and the newspaper gave way to television, which obviously radio first, obviously, which in which you could broadcast across very easily across state borders uh, into other nations and more immediate than even newspapers, of course, were. And that became a powerful tool. Television, of course, we saw in the Vietnam War how important that was, but it also led to protests at home because we began to see real journalism. So these tools, if you use it for journalism rather than 
propaganda, you can begin to send some truth to the population. We saw Americans dying in the patties, in the rice patties of Vietnam on color on television. I was, I'm old enough to remember seeing that on our TV sets and what that impact had on the country. So beyond that now, of course, we're living in the, the cinema was very important. The propaganda of Hitler with Lenny Reifenstahl's films uh, and the newsreels that were shown in the cinemas about how the war effort was going, all ways to portray your enemy as the enemy and our side as being good. And we're always winning the war. We are living now in the age of social media, something completely new. And every citizen can be turned into a mini propagandist. You're going to find people that you'll meet, you probably have, who are say, talking about uh, wanting to pick up a gun and go and fight in Ukraine mm -hmm. to kill those lousy Russians. Yeah. Or, you know, maybe nuclear war wouldn't be so bad. This kinds of insanity that would normally just come from the powerful through their means of communication. They control television. They control the cinema. They control. Few people control these old forms of legacy media. But now, on social media, everyone can. And with YouTube, start your own uh, show on t on YouTube. Your own webcast. You obviously you can write your own tweets. People get huge numbers of followers. So this is a whole different environment where you could try. But you but the powers in this war need to control social media. So they have to stamp out people like three of our writers have been suspended already. That's Scott Ritter, Pepe Escobar, and Patrick Lawrence uh, for questioning the. The, the dominant narrative of the war. And that's not necessarily to praise Russia for their wonderful invasion, but simply to say, well, wait a minute, maybe what happened in that town of Bukha wasn't exactly the way it's being told. There are questions. Or maybe Russia is not losing the war. Maybe they weren't trying to take over Kiev uh, and failed. Maybe that was just a diversionary thing. Anyway, that's what they say. You can't even ask questions now. They want total control in social media, and they're turning social media uses into kind of their own agents. And this was something completely new that social media has brought that never really existed before. Before you could talk to your neighbors about the war or, or at work, but you didn't have the reach that social media gives a any any individual right now. And this is a very dangerous thing, particularly when you it, it's a it could be a very positive thing, social media, and everybody had a great hope that internet, social media will have this democratizing effect. But if you have the powerful interests get control of it, which is what we're seeing, then it becomes very dangerous and easy to manipulate people and get them to manipulate others. Mm. And, and, you know, this calls into question, you know, the, the importance of these media outlets, particularly social media, preying on people's ignorance in order to yes. be successful. And, and I don't mean that in like a disparaging way, but just the fact that we live in a country, Joe, where our public education system does not teach people about the actual history of the world and really indoctrinates people into a Hollywood version of what the U.S. has done around the world, where the U.S. is the good guy and everyone else is the bad guy. And the other... And, and, and our enemy is whomever the U.S. says our enemy is and for whatever reason the U.S. says our enemy is. So you, you have this ready-made population that is already so deeply misinformed about just the reality of U.S. foreign policy and, and gross U.S. misdeeds around the world that, I mean, this social media environment really does prey on people's lack of knowledge of the truth that already exists. Fertile ground. 
fertile ground to have a population that is not politically educated, not historically educated, and they don't have a very good grasp of geography too, Americans, and we see this in studies. And this is not because American people in particular are somehow inferior uh, intellectually, it's just the, the conditioning and the system that they're growing up in. We're not being taught these things. And the media, and yes, Hollywood has a huge, huge, powerful influence, entertainment industry, more than the schools, over, overrides whatever your school teacher wanted to teach you about geography or history, uh, is somehow wiped away. Uh, uh, if you don't make the the effort on your own to educate yourself, and so you, so in a, a sense, every individual is also responsible for this situation we have here. We, I cannot blame only powerful people who are in control of the media uh, and who are trying to get total control of social media, but also the individual. You have this has to be important to you, and it isn't to most. And I'm not just talking about people with uh, with just a high school education. Sometimes people with higher education or even degrees, when they in the, uh, get into uh, the feeling of being part of what's popular and being part of what you don't want to stand out from the group and say, hold on a minute, there were causes to this uh, war in Ukraine that we're not being told about. And then you try to explain what those causes are, that there was no explanation about the 2014 U.S. back coup, that the eight-year civil war against Donbass, the NATO expansion, the positioning of NATO weapons close to to uh, Russia, Ukraine maybe being told that you one day you'll be a member of NATO. Now, you know, you might know that, of course, uh, your listeners know that in the Solomon Islands now, uh, China as in Solomon Islands have made a deal to put in a Chinese military installation there. Right. And the Australian government and the U.S. government say this is unacceptable. They can't join a military alliance like that. But, but that's exactly the answer they gave to the Russians when Russia said Ukraine should not join the military alliance. They can join any alliance they want. I mean, the hypocrisy is extraordinary here. So the the, the scary part is that the public of the United States has never been, in, it's good for them that they've never been invaded except in 1812, when the British came for a couple of days and burnt the White House and left. But the U.S. was started by an invasion of the indigenous people, by Europeans, right? First the British, then the Dutch and the Spanish and the French. They all came to North America. Virtually, of course, the, the Americans took control and the invasions continued of the rest of the sovereign Native American countries, and then of Mexico, and Spanish possessions after that, and they've stopped invading. Whereas Russia has been invaded. U.S. doesn't understand what a Russian invasion is. Ameri Russian people have been invaded many times, and they defeated the Nazis in Second World War. So they, there's a special understanding of what it means to be invaded, and to see Nazis in a state next to them that are being that is uh, have Nazis integrated into the absolute state military, and this and to, to be worshiping the leader of the World War II era Ukrainian fascist that killed hundreds of thousands of Jews and is a de facto NATO state right now because there's NATO weapons there, there were NATO trainers there, there were joint exercises before. It was essentially a NATO state without being part of NATO. So clearly you have to try to see it from the Russian point of view. Uh, and again, that doesn't mean you could agree that the invasion was the right way to stand up to this or to do something about it, but these things are not given to the American people. So, so the ignorance is already there from the cultural culturization of American people, the conditioning, but also the ignorance is compounded by the 
corporate media today leaving out these key facts about the Ukraine war, particularly the invasion, sorry, the coup in 2014 that started all of this, really, and the war for eight years against the, the Russian speakers in the Donbass. This is, it doesn't exist. They just wiped it out. And this is really creates unbelievable ignorance to allow the population to just see this as a completely black and white thing. And almost nothing in international affairs is black and white. It's all the fault of the Russians. They are just slaughtering uh, civilians because they love killing civilians. This is what people believe. So it's a very scary, inf and the Russians are terrible at information warfare. You look at their defense briefings, their Ministry of Defense briefing on Telegram, because you can't really see it online. It's been banned everywhere, which you know, as a journalist tried to cover this war, I wasn't able to get to the Kremlin website because it was hacked. I wasn't able to get the statements of the, the Russian side of the story. There's two sides of every story, Journalism 101. We've been denied the other side of the story, not just the public, but even reporters, if you should be so interested in knowing what the other side of the story is, it was very hard to get. But the Russians just do these very monotonous, boring uh, briefings, and they give statistics down to, you know, 5,642 tanks. How do they know exactly? So it's, you know, we can't believe everything they're saying either. That's the problem here. What's going on on the ground? And if both sides don't say it, I don't believe it. Like both sides said that that Russian ship in the Black Sea was sunk. So one, first the Ukrainians said, I didn't believe it, and the Russians said that. And then when the Russians said they sunk, that's when I start believing. But now the Ukrainians say they shot it with two American Neptune missiles, and the Russians say there was a fire on board that caused an explosion of the ammunition. So now I don't know what happened over there, <laughs> but I just know it sunk. You see, that's the only rule of thumb you can go by in the information warfare. But the American side, the European side is so uh, sweeping like I have never seen worse than the lead up to the 2003 invasion of Iraq with the w French wine being poured down the drains and the freedom fries. This is way worse than that, way more controlling because social media is involved here for one thing. And it wasn't in 2003. Twitter didn't exist then, nor did Facebook, I believe. Wow. Yeah, well, definitely we're seeing uh, major news outlets covering uh, this uh, proxy war in Ukraine with flashy and colorful info boards uh, on CNN to make it, you know, appealing and, and almost cartoonish. And that's certainly another part of the danger. But we're going to have to leave it there. We thank you so much, Joe Lauria, for joining us today. We'll be right back after this break on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Jackie Lukemond, and as always, we're your guide to connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Today, we're talking about the continued denial of rights to the citizens of Puerto Rico. And for this conversation, we're happy to be joined by Libre X Sankara, poet, cultural worker, educator, and organizer with the Troika Collective. Libre, thanks so much for joining us. Absolutely. Thank you all so much for having me. Absolutely. And, you know, this is, I, I'm, I'm, so annoyed by this uh, Supreme Court and the continued denial of rights uh, that it is uh, continuing to uphold to the citizens of Puerto Rico this time uh, in regard to welfare programs. The court ruled on Thursday uh, to um, 
reject a bid to extend a federal program offering benefits to low-income, elderly, blind, and disabled people who are residents of Puerto Rico, finding that Congress had the authority to to prevent those uh, living in the American territory. Remember, folks, that Puerto Rico is a territory uh, of the United States, a colony, if you will, from receiving that assistance. So, I mean... Give us some background on this particular issue. How long has it been going on for it to have reached the Supreme Court? And how many people does this affect, Libre? What's happening right now is the latest, um, one of the latest attempts um, to prove the difference, um, the second class citizenship that uh, territories face um, and the fact that uh, our our humanity and these things called human rights um, are always uh, subject to who's in a position of power. And so the Supreme Court ruling um, was eight to one um, in favor of denying um, elderly Boricuas uh, their uh, benefits, right? And so, and the only person, surprisingly, well, not so surprisingly, that voted against this was um, Sotamayor, who is uh, of Boricua descent. Um, uh, in terms of those affected, I'm not sure the total number, um, but when we're talking about those that are still on the island, taking into account um, mass migration, uh, the individuals that oftentimes are on the island happen to be the elderly folks, um, working class folks and children. Um, and so I would say easily um, about one fourth of our population would be affected by this. Um, and they are actually one of the groups that have been receiving the short end of the stick um, as of late with a lot of the policies that have been passed um, by the um, PPD, um, the uh, Partido um, Progresista of Puerto Rico, um, as well as the U.S. government, um, because they're they're actually trying to increase the um, uh, the age for retirement so that folks could work longer. You know, this is a program that um, the federal government said that if it expands covering Puerto Rico would cost. $2 billion a year. Now, when, when you think about that, Libre, that, that amount of money sounds big. But when you consider that Volodymyr Zelensky is asking the Biden administration for $2 billion a month in emergency aid to Ukraine, um, it remains to be seen whether they'll get it. But we have seen the United States government throw hundreds of millions of dollars. Uh, it seems like almost maybe seven or eight hundred million dollars at least a month since January, since uh, uh, the beginning of this military action in Ukraine. I mean, what what do the people in Puerto Rico say when they see the United States government throwing money hand over fist uh, at Ukraine, but refusing to extend uh, Social Security income and SSDI benefits to elderly and low-income disabled people that would only cost $2 billion a year. 
Well, I mean, I think what we have to realize is this is a matter of where they want to put funds instead of uh, instead of what they're portraying, which is we don't have it, right? Because uh, the same way, like like you're saying, we're throwing billions of dollars at the Ukraine. Well, what does it look like to be amidst a housing crisis? Um, individuals are asking for student debt to be canceled, um, and instead we're investing in war, right? Um, and uh, there's also this myth um, that a lot of folks have, right? Um, maybe the perception in the U.S. is, well, um, of course, Boricuas should be denied this benefit. They they, they don't pay uh, taxes, and which is not true. There is, like, we don't pay federal taxes because we're not a state. But um, as I've said on shows in the past, Boricuas pay 13% tax in the country because there's multiple taxes and I'm not sure folks are aware of that, right? But just because we don't pay federal, it doesn't mean that we're not paying taxes. In fact, um, a study showed um, that um, over the span of a little over 15 years, the US invested $4 billion into Puerto Rico and the Puerto Rican economy invested $74 billion into the U.S. economy. So breaking the myth, right, that benef- that uh, the Boricua people are lazy and that they're getting uh, they're getting a deal and at least the U.S. is helping them because they don't pay taxes. Like, not only do we pay taxes, we pay more taxes. In fact, Puerto Rico uh, pays more taxes than six states. That are that are in the 50 states of the United States of America, but we do not. But but this is a clear indication that that does not equate to us receiving benefits, right? So breaking this myth that like we're not contributing to the economy, we're contributing exponentially more into the U.S. economy than the U.S. is investing in into our country. Okay, so this case libre actually started with uh, a man named Jose Luis Vallejo Madero, uh, who's a disabled 67-year-old man who received SSI benefits when he lived in New York, but he lost eligibility when he moved to Puerto Rico in 2013. The U.S. government actually sued him in federal court uh, in 2017. looking for more than $28,000 in SSI payments back that he received after after moving to Puerto Puerto Rico. I mean, what does it it say that the U.S. government would go after an elderly person for Social Security benefits that they would make a case out of this? What, What does this say to, again, residents of Puerto Rico who who see that the U.S. government would sue its own citizens for benefits that really they should be receiving. Because I should remind folks that Washington, D.C. is also not a state, but Washington, D.C., we do pay federal taxes and we receive SSI and SSDI benefits. So there's certainly a kind of uh, a discrimination and bias here. And do the people of uh, Puerto Rico see this as a racial bias in particular, Libre? Um, so I would say in terms of um, of the perception on the island, it, this, this is a constant attack, a constant struggle um, that we've historically had to experience where, again, second-class citizenship um, and uh, being a territory, you are you are subject to uh, to what 
what the government says and unfortunately right uh, what the government has shown through actions through policies that have been passed is um we like we're gonna allow you to have what what we see fit don't ask for anything more like you are uh, a lazy people and so in terms of the the environment that has been created um and um a lot of the perceptions of boricuas that are like back in the country this is uh this just further shows the divide between like are we really part of the us or are we just being taken advantage of and and so Historically speaking, this has happened in military service um, where Boricuas were forced to be in um, their own units or forced to be in the all-black units, right? And then when they came back, they were not given benefits. Um, and so um, the the view back on the island is, like, why are you attacking the people that need the, the benefits? And it's not like we're not contributing to this economy. Um, and so... What we see right now is really a move um, and, and a perception of Boricuas, a, a re-realization, if you will, of the fact that like we're not part of the U.S. and we need to be fighting for our independence. And so we do see that there is uh, more of uh, understanding that being in relationship to the U.S. does not necessarily equate to benefiting positively um and in fact it's led to lower quality of life and a necessity for folks to have to leave the country with mass migration on the up and up more boricuas being forced to leave the country and work uh in the u.s yeah and this particular ruling issued by the supreme court it was uh an eight to one ruling was actually in favor of the biden administration's uh stand on the case to not extend the program, the SSI program, to everyone, uh, including all of the people in U.S. territories, which would include uh, Boricuans on uh, the island of Puerto Rico. And that actually reversed a lower court's ruling that a 1972 decision by Congress to exclude Puerto Rico from the SSI program violated the U.S. Constitution, which requires that laws apply equally to everyone. So, Libre, we've got a so-called Democratic president who has continued in uh, demonizing and othering the people of Puerto Rico um, in the same way that the former Republican president that we were told we had to vote for, uh, Biden, to get rid of Trump, uh, Biden continued Trump's policy in this regard, uh, but also um, in, in opposition to the lower court ruling that the Constitution says that law should apply to everyone. So what is the uh, uh, the the current a situation with uh, the fight for statehood in Puerto Rico, especially considering we see at this point that this administration is not going to be any more receptive to uh, equal treatment for Boricuans as uh, the last administration was. Well, what we see is there's less and uh, there's um, individuals are less likely and less inclined to um, to want statehood. In fact, the only people that are asking for statehood um, is the um, is the PNP, which is um, has historically been um, the the pro statehood party. But what we have to understand is the the reality is uh, Puerto, Puerto Ricans would never be offered 
the opportunity to become a state because um, the U.S. would have to invest significant significant amount of funds into the uh, Boricua economy in order to get it to the minimum standard that it takes to become a state. Furthermore, right, um, they, they're not even willing to give us uh, social security benefits. And so what does that mean? Well, not only does it mean like the U.S. wouldn't want us to be part of the states because we're not part of the United States, um, but this also uh, amplifies and has strengthened um, over the last year um, the movement towards independence. And we have seen less people participating in the um, in the democratic processes of voting. People are not um, people are not being moved by Democrats that are that are making false promises. Right. And keep in mind, uh, we're going into an election season. So this ruling just passed. But I would not be surprised if in less than three months, uh, the Democratic, whoever's running on the Democratic uh, ticket, is going to say something along the lines of, we have to help Puerto, Rican, uh, Puerto Ricans be treated like citizens. Uh, we have to pass something. But ev everything that is proposed is a referendum, a non-binding referendum, right? And so nothing systematically is changing. And I think Puerto Ricans are being less and less uh, um, uh it, they're they're falling less and less for this idea of the American dream. They're no longer disillusioned into the relationship, the colonial relationship that has always existed um, between uh, the colonizers and um, the Boricua people. And so I think the the idea of independence is becoming more of a necessity rather than an idea that like. Uh, this is an option we have. It's actually the only option we have if we're looking to respect the humanity of Puerto Ricans. Yeah, that's definitely, definitely true. I absolutely uh, co-sign on that with you. Now, there is, uh, and this is the argument behind uh, the ruling, that there are programs in Puerto Rico that are like the SSI programs, uh, program, there's something called Aid to the Aged, Blind, and Disabled but why is that not sufficient uh, for, uh, you know, for Puerto Ricans and why the need to push for inclusion in the SSI program? Well, I think <clears throat> I think what we have to understand, right, is when we talk about these programs, let's talk about whether or not they're being funded. Right. And what we see is like there are programs that are being offered. There's minimal staff no infrastructure, it's not sustainable, and it's not long-term. And so, right, like, it's not to say that there are no programs, it's to say, like, are these programs sustainable? And for the most part, the answer would be no. Like, we don't even have hospitals in Vieques, which is a place that has large amount of elderly folks that are, um, that has one of the highest rates of cancer, right? Like, we don't have a hospital there. Because after Hurricane Maria, the U.S. refused to invest funds. Why? Because we're not a state. But again, remember, I said, the U like, we invest significantly more in the U.S. government um, than the U.S. government invests in our country. Mm. 
definitely time for uh, independence for Puerto Rico, uh, not just for this issue, but for all of the issues and for all of the people. I want to thank you so much, Libre, for joining us. We are out of time. We're going to leave it there. But you are listening to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Jackie Lukman. And as always, we're your guide to connecting the political, social and economic movement shaping the world around us. By any means necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Jackie Lukman. And as always, we're your guide to connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Oh, yes, it is Monday, April 25th. 2022. And we are happy to be live once again, a new week. Uh, Glad that you are joining us. And there are still so many ways for our allies, accomplices and comrades to reach out and touch us. Hear it by any means necessary in Washington, D.C. You can do that by calling us at 3.20 p.m. Eastern Time at 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. But you can also listen to our shows at sputniknews.com slash radio and type in by any means necessary at the green plus sign. You can also check our shows out on sputnik.mave. That's M-A-V-E dot digital. You can also listen to us live on your radio dial at 105.5 FM and 1390 AM in the Washington, D.C. area from 2 to 4 p.m. Eastern time every day of the week. And we are streaming for your viewing pleasure on Rumble right now at rumble.com slash C slash B-A-M necessary. The chat is live. And remember, folks, at 3.20 p.m. Eastern time, you can call us at 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. But wherever you are in this world and however you do it, we want to hear from you. We most certainly do. We most certainly do. And we are most certainly happy to be joined by Margaret Kimberly, editor and senior columnist of Black Agenda Report and author of the book Prejudential. Black America and the Presidents. Margaret, thanks so much for joining me. Thank you, Jackie. Good to be back. Great to have you back, especially now, Margaret, since I guess Twitter is under the purview of Elon Musk. I I think that that deal has been approved. Twitter has uh, uh, reportedly accepted Elon Musk's uh, $41 billion, I think it was, uh, actually, no, $46.5 billion. I guess that guess that, that half a billion dollars makes all the difference in the world. Um, in, in an unsolicited bid to purchase the company. Now, I know that a lot of people, Margaret, are cheering this and, you know, thinking that, oh, this is, you know, Elon Musk is going to stick it to the man. But I'm not getting that vibe at all. And I'm wondering what your thoughts are on on just the fact that this happened, regardless of whether it was Elon Musk who who bought Twitter. But just the fact that 
a, a social media company was bought in an unsolicited bid by a, a tech billionaire. Um, and, and what that means for uh, the, the, the potential for freedom of speech, particularly on that platform, that, that has had its problems, certainly, with censoring people and that kind of thing. But I, I mean, do you think it's going to be, you know, the stick it to the man kind of move that people are thinking it's going to be, Margaret? <laughs> well, Musk is the man. <laughs> not. Uh, he, he is a net worth of, I just looked it up, $270 billion. Uh, the fact that people can get that rich is problematic in and of itself. Um, and uh, it's, you know, it's tempting to, <clears throat> excuse me, to try to have some positive thought about this. He he has said he wants, uh, he believes in uh, uh, free uh, speech. He believes that uh, there should be unfettered communication on social media. Well, that sounds good. I'm in favor of that. But um, if he uh, does, um, w well, when he does own Twitter and he controls the company, is he going to put the uh, left voices that have been kicked off of the platform, is he going to put them back on? Um, or is it going to be just right wingers? Um, I mean, I'm all for anybody who wants to let us edit on Twitter. That would uh, make my life much easier. But the, the, the problem is the um, that we live under billionaire rule. And he and other extremely wealthy people are evidence, their great wealth, evidence of inequality, which cannot be fixed, cannot be reformed. Um, it's very dangerous when wealthy people own, uh, have that great a stake in the media with Jeff Bezos owning the Washington Post. He ends up, of course, promoting himself. Uh, the fact that the media are in the hands of uh, media consolidation. Only six corporations control most of what we see and read and hear. So this is uh, very bad. And if people think there's a benevolent billionaire, he, you know, tweeted, I can solve world hunger. And the U.N. Relief Agency said, OK. And he said, I, you know, six billion dollars could fix most world hunger. And they said, well, here's what we do with six billion dollars. And they never heard from him because that's not in his interest. Being a billionaire is in his interest. His company, SpaceX, has a defense contract. That's not in the interest of, uh, of the people. So there's nothing aside from getting an edit uh, feature. I don't see anything that's beneficial about this. Yeah, you know, he is uh, he meaning Elon Musk, the richest man in the world. And sometimes that that title richest man in the world kind of vacillates between Musk and and uh, uh, Bezos. So I think they're running this, uh, you know, obscene uh, competition, oligarchical competition, because they absolutely do their money, uh, as you pointed out, absolutely does influence uh, government policy where their interests are concerned. Um Elon Musk was quoted as saying, I invested in Twitter as I believe in its potential to be the platform for free speech around the globe. And I believe free speech is a societal imperative for a functioning democracy. However, since making my investment, I now realize the company will neither thrive nor serve this societal imperative in its current form. Twitter needs to be transformed as a private company. And I, I feel like, Margaret, that is 
another one of those examples of of rich people saying the quiet part out loud, rich people with a lot of power admitting that they like things privatized. That's the only way things will work. But but not for us, for them, because if Twitter really were uh, to be a benefit or a, a societal imperative for free speech, then the things that Musk is saying that he will do, and there, there are a couple of things. He would, would do away with the, uh, some of the content moderators and, and uh, you know, do away with the banning of, of accounts and all that kind of stuff and, and make the algorithm uh, public so that people could see the source code and, and, you know, that kind of thing. But if Twitter were to be beneficial to society, then you can do those things without it being a private company. You know, you don't have to have the company as a private entity to do that. But, you know, Elon Musk is saying that, no, this is only going to work if it's privatized, which to me just speaks to Elon Musk, not only being, you know, your typical American rich capitalist oligarch, but he's also clearly a neoliberal. And this is what neoliberal policy breeds the privatization of what should be public uh, 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 benefits and services that should exist to serve the people, but really would only serve to would only exist to serve people like Elon Musk and his gargantuan ego, Margaret. <laughs> well, absolutely. Uh, you know, he's a uh... You know, if if uh, he were a person who was uh, committed to some sort of social reform, he wouldn't do what he does for a living. This is a guy, lest we forget, who said who will coup who we want mm-hmm. uh, around the time of a coup in Bolivia. One of the issues involving lithium, which he needs for his Tesla uh, cars, for electronic cars. And the Bolivian government, the popularly elected government, uh, wanting to nationalize lithium. And he said, we'll coup whoever we want. This is not somebody who we want to uh, be in charge of what should be a public utility. To your point, these media platforms need to be regulated, not their content, but they should be regulated as public utilities with a guarantee that everyone will have access. That is what um, we ought to have. And we are not going to have that with rich people fighting over who gets to own them. That's definitely uh, definitely a fact. And, and, I, and I have just as much smoke for the current owners of Twitter, or I guess I should say the former owners of Twitter, um, in, in their complete refusal to not take this man's offer. Because... Here's the thing that really kind of blows my mind, Margaret. When I found out that this deal was unsolicited, it's not like Twitter was in any way, you know, hurting financially. They were not losing money. They they didn't, you know, they're, they're not in Netflix's situation where Netflix decides they want to uh, uh, cut off, you know, the way for people to share uh, passwords with family and friends and then, you know, lose $100 million. Um, Twitter was doing just fine, even even with the ridiculous censorship, even with, uh, you know, banning certain uh, uh, people as of late, uh, uh, the a lot of left voices on Twitter. Twitter wasn't, you know, hurting financially. So so the idea that Elon Musk or anybody could just come in and say, here, I have forty six and a half billion dollars and I want to buy your company if 
the owners of Twitter were concerned about free speech and access, free and unfettered access to their platform. They didn't have to take Musk's offer, but the money just seemed to be too good, Margaret. Oh, sure. They're, you know, they're, people are going to get very rich. I would love to see a breakdown of how much uh, money is being made here. So the people selling it are um, are doing very, very, they, well, they already were, right? Uh, and now they are even richer. So, um, yeah, that is a concern that everything's fine. And then somebody with more money than they are comes along and says, I'll give you more money. And so they sell it. And Twitter, you know, it's um, these platforms have now become a necessity. Uh, you, you could say they're privately held and you don't have to be on it. Well, then you don't have to be heard either. If you're trying to convey information, if you want to, um, as I do and you do, to write and to speak and to uh, um, uh, present ideas or promote our work, we cannot do that without these social media platforms. You can't sell a product. You can't open a store. You can't, you know, sell a book anything without Twitter, without Facebook, without Instagram, and so on and so on. So um, uh, because they have become a necessity uh, in this age, that's why they should be regulated. And, um, um, you know, we have a Federal Trade Commission, which, you know, every now and again says that uh, you can't have a monopoly or this one can't buy this or sell that. But now it's this free-for-all for very wealthy people, and they determine who does and does not speak. And, it's, and it points to a bigger problem. We live under billionaire rule, uh, where this, there's this explosion of great wealth amongst uh, uh, people like Elon Musk and others. So, you know, Bill Gates owns most of the farmland in the country. Who, who knew? Uh, I just found that out recently. There's nothing good about that. There's nothing beneficial about that. So, uh, you know, they decide what does and doesn't happen politically. What They decide what we do and don't get. They decide that there's going to be a war, who's going to be in office. And this is just another indication that we, we cannot have a functioning democracy. We would love to talk about, you know, living in a democratic society, but you don't have democracy when you live under billionaire rule. No, definitely. And, and and the piece about Bill Gates owning most of the farmland in this country is not something that we should just dismiss, because right now the, the Biden administration and and pretty much everybody in the Biden administration is, is is going on with this narrative about, you know, high oil prices and food shortages and this kind of stuff. Well, if if Bill Gates owns most of the farmland in this country. Why is there a food shortage? I, I mean, th- these are kinds of questions. These are the kinds of questions that people would ask if they had this information. And that's kind of the double edged sword about social media, Margaret. And, and as much as we rely on it to convey the information that we do, we also see the, the gross blind spots because this kind of information about Gates owning most of the farmland and 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 the holes in this idea of, you know, fuel shortages and and and, and food shortages. And it, it it makes no sense. But because we realize 
that because these media apparatuses, and you might as well call Facebook and and Twitter and even TikTok uh, a part of the media ecosystem in this country, they are owned by the oligarchs. So there's some information that gets out there and gets pushed and gets uh, you know, promoted because of the algorithm that's written by human beings who have their biases. And then there's other information that gets suppressed. And folks like us have to work that much harder to get that truth out that we know is not being uh, as much or as widely promoted as the frivolous stuff from the TikTok or, you know, uh, uh, Instagram or Twitter influencers who were invited to the White House at the onset of this uh, proxy war in Ukraine to push the narrative that, you know, Ukraine good, Russia bad. Uh, and, And we're missing all of these pieces that would provide some serious context to what is going on and how it's impacting us. But again, because these outlets that are so vital to conveying information are owned by oligarchs, we have to be very, very careful in what we believe and, and, and what we weed out because they are very, very clear in the kind of messaging and the narratives that they promote. So we have to be doubly on our guard uh, for what, to, to look out for what they're not saying, Margaret. Yes, and what they not what they don't allow us to say. Uh, I had an experience a, a couple of months ago. I was uh, on an interview on someone's YouTube channel, and it was a two part interview. And we were discussing COVID, and I criticized Biden's COVID policy, and they YouTube just removed it. They just took it off, and uh, it was nothing that should have been considered controversial. I said that their policies have failed because a million people are now dead. Um, so, uh, so I and we've all faced uh, faced these um, these uh, the issue of uh, censorship. Uh, where, you know, it, it could be COVID, it could be Ukraine. And in order to not be kicked off, people, you know, misspell words and say, you, I've done it myself. Uh, you know, you know who is done, you know what, and country with the letter U, you know, all kinds of silly, seemingly silly things. But it just shows you that um, we we can't have what we think of as free speech, which is um, actually about the, the government's action and what the government is allowed to do. Um, but uh, the reality is, if uh, you have very wealthy people determining who has a voice and who doesn't, then you don't have free speech at all. Then it is something that does not uh, truly exist. It's free speech until you say something that the powers that be don't like, and then it's not. But we're going to move to a break, uh, and we'll be right back on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Jackie Lukemond, and as always, we're your guide to connecting the political 
social and economic movements shaping the world around us. Phone lines are now open, my friends, 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. I continue to be joined by Margaret Kimberly. And Margaret, you know, on the topic of Ukraine, I I can't help but feel like this whole proxy war against Russia using Ukraine was this horribly misguided gambit by Joe Biden to boost his approval ratings. Now, now we know that Biden is really just fulfilling the 2014 plan laid out by his former boss, Barack Obama, uh, back in 2014 with the coup and all that kind of stuff. So so this it was really the, the fruition of that plan. But I, I also feel like the, the trigger was pulled, so to speak, by Biden, particularly at a moment when because of what you just said at the on the other end, uh, on the other side of the break, the you know, the horrible disaster of his covid response that he didn't do any better than Trump did, that he he actually saw more deaths during his administration than under Trump's administrations and uh, uh, Trump's administration. And now we're at nearly a million people dead because Biden did not do the things he promised he would do, that he campaigned saying that Trump managed horribly, didn't do. So Biden's approval ratings in the tank, just terrible. And all of a sudden he does what a lot of U.S. presidents do he started this this thing in Ukraine. But I don't think it's working out very well for him, Margaret. I think that what has happened is that the the specter of Russophobia and and anti-communist hysteria, although we know that Russia is not communist, Putin isn't communist, but I think that speaks more to the ignorance of the American population. Uh, than it does to the effectiveness of the propaganda. But, but what I think this what I think this this war in Ukraine or war using Ukraine against Russia has done is to stir up the anti-Putin hatred, Russophobia and anti-communism. But it, it I don't think people like Biden anymore. <laughs> I'm wondering what you say about that. I mean, you wrote about this in your piece in uh, Black Agenda Report. I mean, but but do you think this is helping Biden any? No, it isn't. He I, I, there were two goals he had. Um, you know, Biden was the point person, the Obama point person after the Obama administration uh, sided with right wing uh, forces in Ukraine and uh, carrying out a coup against the elected president in 2014. So he and he brought back all those horrible people, those uh uh, neocons who think the U.S. can run the whole world or uh, break up Russia or whatever, you know, fantasy uh, foreign policy they have. Anthony Blinken and Newland and Jake Sullivan, all those people he brought back. Um, so their goal was 
to, uh, they had two things. They wanted to kill the Russians' uh, deal with Germany, the Nord Stream 2 pipeline, and they wanted sanctions against Russia. And they were encouraging the Ukrainian government to start something small. I think they wanted to start something, a small crisis, and um, then they'd be able to sanction Russia. Except, um, you know, Vladimir Putin called the bluff and uh, did something very big, which you're right, that is not going the way they planned. And uh, yes, he's using it to... um, to try to cover up for his failures. Now they've they've coined this stupid term, Putin's price hikes. And he's on to a speaking of Twitter presidents on Twitter saying, uh, all our problems are caused by COVID and Vladimir Putin. And, um, uh, the problem is that you can't damage Russia's economy without damaging the U S economy, without damaging Europe's economy, without causing food shortages around the world. So they got some of what they wanted, but they also got a lot that they uh, had not bargained for. So we have inflation. We have price hikes of gasoline and other things because corporations are raising prices and nobody, you know, stands in their way. Uh, we should have price controls. That is what we need in order to uh, to help people who are struggling. And we need Biden to do the things he said he was going to do. He did talk about using his um, uh, power of executive orders to uh, have some kind of uh, uh, student loan debt relief. And, and he just, in many cases, just out and out lied. They knew what people wanted, so he claimed he'd raise the minimum wage. But then when the opportunity came... Uh, what did they do? They claimed the Senate parliamentarian wouldn't let them do it. I don't recall Senate parliamentarians ever being discussed to see what did and would and would not uh, pass. The, uh, we did get some stimulus money. People got a child tax credit, which uh, struggling people depended on to help keep them their heads above water a little bit. Then poof, it disappears and Build Back Better isn't going anywhere uh, because the same people we were talking about, the oligarchic class, don't want it to happen. They want austerity. They want a population that is living on the edge, that is dependent, uh, and that will, they hope, uh, remain um, uh, quiescent, that will um, uh, be too afraid and too beaten down to speak up. So uh, that's why his uh, approval ratings are low. Now, the anti-Russian propaganda has succeeded, and I think most people in the country do believe Vladimir Putin is a war criminal and an evil guy, and he eats babies and whatever else. But that does not translate into support for Joe Biden when uh, people here are hurting and he is helping to cause the hurt um, himself with his policies. Yeah, and especially... You know, as of late, in the past couple of months, Joe Biden has gotten on television and had these press conferences where he has announced to a nation with around 140 million people living at or near the poverty line after he has kicked the can down the road repeatedly on out and out canceling student loan debt. Um, you know, the 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 extension of the moratorium to, to pay back law, that's nice. But I mean, it'd be nice. It'd be nicer if it were just canceled in a country where homelessness is rising. Housing prices are astronomical. 
there is no affordable housing. That's it's just that's a misnomer in this country. Um, all of these things, you know, as you pointed, as you pointed out, the minimum wage has not been raised from seven dollars and whatever it is since an hour to a livable wage, which at this point would be $30 an hour for a livable minimum wage. Um, but but it hasn't even been, been raised to the, the floor, $15 an hour. He has gotten on television repeatedly and told the American people with much bravado, I must say, Margaret, that, that he is committing, his administration is committing $700 million to Ukraine for weapons and then $800 million to Ukraine for weapons, and then another $800 million to Ukraine. And people are just kind of wondering. And, and on top of that, now, Volodymyr Zelensky is quoted as wanting the U.S. to provide Ukraine, or I should say him, $2 billion a month in emergency aid. But another source says that Zelensky is asking for $7 billion a month in emergency aid. Now, I don't, I don't think he'll get that much. I'm, I'm sure that he's not going to get $7 billion, but I think he's going to get something. And Biden has repeatedly made these press conferences and said to a nation where half of the people in the country are living at or near the poverty line, we are giving a trillion dollars away to a country to fight a war that this government started. And we're not going to raise the minimum wage. We don't have enough money for Build Back Better. We don't have enough money to fix bridges and and roads and, and provide broadband internet for everyone in this country. We're not going to fully fund public schools. There's not going to be any free college for you, for any of you, but Ukraine can easily have a million, maybe a million and a half. The price tag might be two million in funds sent to weapons to Ukraine just since February, Margaret. I mean, I, I think as much as people might have bought the anti-Putin propaganda, I think people are also kind of making the connections that, wait a minute, where are you getting all this money to send to Ukraine if we, we can't have any of the things that we voted for you to give us? True. And uh, you left out another thing. Um, you know, this is all for... Uh um, you know, this is about the time in 1945 that World War II was coming to a close and the U.S. Uh, fought uh, Nazis. And uh, the, U- the Ukrainian uh, government, its military and police specifically, are full of Nazis. Uh, so we have Americans um, uh, supposedly honoring our, our troops, but at the same time giving money to uh, a country which had a long history of um, collaboration in some portions of the country and where um, uh, people who the media referred to as neo-Nazis a couple of years ago, now they just call them right wing because it's too embarrassing to admit that that to the U.S. is... Um, propping up. And it's, you know, there are contradictions there. I know Zelensky's Jewish, and uh, but in Ukraine, a complete 
kleptocracy from top to bottom, everyone depends on those uh, fascist forces, including Jewish people like himself and the oligarch who put him into office, a man named Kolomoisky. But that's a, another story. But that's a huge amount of money. There have been hundreds of millions of dollars that have gone to Ukraine ever since the end of February when the Russians went in. And a lot of that material is just being destroyed because the Russians are winning. And this is one of the reasons they want to control the narrative that uh, people are being gaslit. All this whole, all this propaganda only works if you think Ukraine is winning or has a chance to win. But if you tell people that the Russians are accomplishing what they set out to do to <clears throat> destroy Ukraine's military to seize uh, control of those regions in the eastern part of the country where they ask for Russian uh, help, then, of course, the narrative falls apart. And then you have to, of course, control the narrative, and hence you have, uh, you have so much uh, censorship. Uh, and nobody is saying this. You know, no one in the corporate media deviates from the narrative. No members of Congress. I, you know, I'm old enough to remember there were always a few dissenters in Congress, always a couple Democrats, a couple Republicans who would speak up in issues of foreign policy. And apparently that's not true anymore. The so-called progressives forget it. They go along with Biden all the time. So nobody will tell you that these millions of dollars going to buy weapons in Ukraine, the weapons are being destroyed by Russia or that you can't just give an army a new weapon system. They've got to be trained. So it could be weeks or even months before they know how to use it. So, um, or uh, weapons, old Soviet weapons being sent all from uh, countries that are now NATO, NATO members. So all of this is BS. It's all bogus. Um, not only are there issues with supporting Ukraine, but all this money being used to support them is just money going down the drain. And the Secretary of State and the Secretary of Defense um, uh, met with uh, uh, Zelensky yesterday. Um, it would be interesting to be a fly on the wall and see what they talked about. But the Defense Secretary said, well, our goal is to weaken Russia, which they're not going to do. Um, uh, this is not... Uh, Russia, the Soviets going into Afghanistan. So we have a president and a team who, frankly, are just incompetent. Um, uh, Biden's foreign policy team should all be fired. And I, I guess that means Biden should fire himself <laughs> while, he's, uh, while he's, he's at it. But yes, at the same time, we're being told that anything that helps us, anything that helps the people is too expensive. Uh, we are also being told that... Um, uh, Ukraine needs our tax dollars, but apparently we don't need our own money. But Margaret, you said that Ukraine was not winning. I mean, so you mean to tell me that Malcolm uh, uh, Vance, uh, I think that's his name, the, the guy from CNN who uh, went to Ukraine and he tweeted, I've done enough talking or something or other. Malcolm Nance, that's his name. You mean to tell me he's wrong? <laughs> Because he he reported uh, on the ground from Ukraine and he said and, and he's a black uh, uh, man. Uh, uh, I think he was a security analyst for CNN. Uh, so he goes to Ukraine and all of this uh, uh, way too much, way too much gear. I, I'm, I've never been in the military, so I, I'm probably not one to to judge. But 
that just really seemed like a lot of equipment he had on in that picture. But but he said he didn't see any Nazis. So, I mean, you mean to tell me he's wrong? Yes. <laughs> you know, he's a very, on the one hand, he's a very lucky man. He found this great grift. And he's made a lot of money on MSNBC or CNN or one of those, uh, claiming to be some sort of expert when he's nothing of the sort. Um, and uh, I just all I hope is that he keeps in mind what the Russians said about these volunteers from other countries. They said they're all fair game. So as long as he knows that uh, and the Russians have. They have hit uh, these some of these camps where these volunteers are deployed and killed a lot of people. They're Americans who have been killed already. So if Malcolm Nance understands that and still wants to go over there, there, then I guess he ought to just go on over there. But, of course, he's part of the fraud. Uh, it's all a fraud, and the corporate media are the main purveyors of the fraud. They uh, march in lockstep with the state. And uh, that is why we can't trust what we read in major newspapers and uh, television networks. And it's why we need a free and open um, uh, online space where we can get uh, in the information that we are seeking. Definitely true. And, you know, all jokes aside, I was watching CNN earlier because, you know, it's part of my job. I don't do it because I want to. Um, and they they had on the you know have their coverage for what's going on in Ukraine and they and they had on the ticker at the bottom of the ticker, uh, Ukraine forces kill fifteen thousand Russians, and and I felt that that was an incredibly obscene and dehumanizing kind of war propaganda that that relegates human beings down to numbers on a ticker to claim that, quote unquote, our guys are winning. And and in the context of understanding what the U.S. media, the corporate media is doing and spinning the lies that they are about this war and literally covering up neo-Nazis and other fascist elements in the Ukraine army that the U.S. armed and legitimized and unleashed on that region, on that country in the eastern region since 2014, that kind of, of little, little ticker takes on a whole new meaning when you understand that the corporate media is not only probably making up the number, but that they are actually willing to celebrate the number of kills that, quote unquote, their guys are making. And it's it's tellingly chilling. And I think it's an accurate reflection of the character of this government and the media uh, that is controlled by it. But we're going to move to another break. We will be right back on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. So stay tuned. By any means necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Jackie Lukman, and as always, we're your guide to connecting the political 
social and economic movement shaping the world around us. I continue to be joined by Margaret Kimberly. Goodness, I think I'm so tired of talking about this Ukraine war and wishing that it would just be done, Margaret, that I just get tongue tied just thinking about everything that is just a complete mess because of it. Um, and, And I feel like the elections in France are sort of a part of this in a, in a way. And, and I, I, I think that Emmanuel Macron won the election, not because his policies were so great. I think partially he won that election because nobody wants the, forward, the far right, except for the members of the far right in France. <laughs> like nobody wanted to vote for Le Pen uh, other than the people who were far right. But the reality is for people who are not members of the far right in France, Macron has not been anybody that people wanted to vote for. And and I think this is such a a a familiar feeling kind of thing, because this lesser evilism is exactly what we get here in the United States. Emmanuel Macron is a neoliberal. He has been repressive of religious minorities, particularly Muslims in France, um, to the point where the right, the far right, was cheering for some of the policies that he implemented, uh, stigmatizing uh, 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 Muslims. I mean, so I feel like this election in France where, you know, Media outlets around the world are saying, oh, you know, Macron's victory is a victory for democracy. I I don't think it is, Margaret. I think it's a victory for lesser evilism again. And I'm wondering what your thoughts are about uh, the implications for that election. Well, it shows the weakness of the left that um, uh, French people were given the choice between a a xenophobic racist and uh, the person of Marine Le Pen, but who advocates for uh, the, uh, the welfare state and for protection of workers, and Macron, who was, he was a banker. He was an investment banker. That tells you where his politics are, um, who had, can shut down. France allows him to shut down a mosque, and he's done so. Uh, and he's all, France is also a member of NATO, and he has, um, you know, typical European, so... Um, happy to be puppets of uh, the U.S. He attempted to broker some sort of negotiation between Putin and NATO, but failed because it was a lot of talk and nothing nothing new. But it tells you the failure of the left in general. Um, people in uh, France, the, um, the Gilets Jaunes, the Yellow Vest movement of a couple of years ago, that was um, uh, mostly a movement of conservative people, but they were concerned uh, about the fact that uh, the welfare state was being whittled away and that EU membership, the EU requires austerity, lest we forget. And that means a country like France, which was always well known for taking care of its citizens, all the things Americans don't have, you know, free health care and free universities and so on, that those things were being uh, diminished over time. So uh, uh, Le Pen, excuse me, was in favor of some things that I'm in favor of. And I'm not going to say that she should have won, but this idea that um, uh, uh, Macron is some sort of 
big improvement is absurd. And of course, we saw, you know, she was uh, um, tarred as being pro-Putin and she took money from a Russian bank and, you know, picture of her shaking hands with Putin. Well, Macron is shaking hands with Putin. You know, Joe Biden has. What is that proof? But uh, Russia, again, being used uh, as a foil in order to subvert all all kinds of uh, of things in uh, the so-called uh, uh, West, in the uh, EU and uh, NATO uh, axis. So um, it's it's a disappointing result that there really is no functioning left. That is the message that uh, that's my takeaway from this election. And it's uh, very sad that somebody like Macron, who, um, you know, when he interacts with, and by the way, uh, France is uh, still very much an imperialist power in Africa. Many of African nations were formerly French colonies. They have to, um, uh, their uh, currency is actually controlled by France. Uh, France uses a lot of nuclear power. Guess where that uranium comes from? It comes from Niger, a former French colony. When he speaks to Africans, it's always to scold them, to say they shouldn't complain and colonialism is over and uh, that sort of thing. So he's no friend to uh, to African people either. Uh, so, And we both have touched on the uh, anti-Muslim sentiments and actions from his administration. But this is what happens when there's no functioning left. And, you know, there is a a more left uh, politician in France, but this is for uh, prime minister and it's uh, Jean-Luc Mélenchon, uh, who is uh, he's he's pegged as as left of progressive. And I don't know that even if he is elected as prime minister, I think he would he would face off uh, against uh, Le Pen. I'm, I, I may be incorrect on that, but I mean, I, I feel like with Macron as president, nothing, even if Mélenchon does win the prime minister uh, office, nothing really fundamentally is going to change unless we're talking about a bid for Mélenchon to challenge Macron five years from now, um, which, I, you know, I'm hoping is the plan. But but I'm looking at this from the context of U.S. politics. And I see where, you know, we talked about the squad a little bit earlier. And, and there's this idea that, you know, this is how you how you challenge the neoliberal Democrats. You get inside the party and you move your way up to challenge them. We, we don't see that happening here. I'm not so sure that would happen in France either. But but what are your thoughts about that? Well, you know, Mélenchon did run for president. I believe he came in third in the there was a first round and then a second round. The top, I, I believe, I'm, I'm correct when the top two vote getters move on to the next round. But Melanchon didn't, uh, did not make it. Um, I, there has to be a real left. I don't know uh, how that plays out electorally in France, but the left are defeated, and this is uh, the kind of thing we end up with. This. Uh, you know, lesser evilism, which is just a joke. It's just evilism. Uh, basically, you're asked to choose between people who are all against your interests, and that is uh, clearly what has uh, what has happened in uh, the French election. So we see uh, 
uh, bourgeois democracy, I guess that's the, the term to use, once again failing uh, the needs of the people. And the fact that the fact that Macron is president at all is uh, proof of um, uh, oligarchic rule uh, being the case not just in this country, but throughout the capitalist world. Um, hopefully that um, um, that will change. I, I, you know, in, in this country, you talked about the squad and all these phony progressives. We don't have any progressives in Congress. We don't have any uh, leftists in uh, high electoral office, un- unfortunately. Uh, and we shouldn't expect it because they can also be very dangerous. Um, uh, they are um, happy to be uh, to cover up for uh, Biden. You know, I'm I'm thinking now, Jamila. Um, I'm sorry, Pramila Jayapal of the Congressional Pro- so-called Progressive Caucus. She said. Um, uh, oh, I give Biden an A or something like that. And, you know, AOC says he exceeded expectations or I, I'm not sure. Did AOC said give him an A and Jayapal say he exceeds expectations? I don't know. But they all praise him. They all do what the Democratic Party leadership wants them to do. So I would I would love to see a functioning uh, left movement uh, succeed electorally um, in the uh, what's called the Western world. And this brings me to something that I was I kind of spied on social media. And, and I, I don't know if it's true or not, but I guess people are floating this idea of Bernie Sanders running again. And my thought is I have no patience, time, interest in another Bernie Sanders campaign. Um, not because I dislike the guy, but because he's bad on imperialism. And and I'm sorry, you cannot, I don't think you can be a, a true leftist and not be anti-imperialist. That's just my thing. Um, but also because he would, of course, he would run as a Democrat again. And, and, and why? After seeing what the party did to him twice, why keep going back trying to change an institution that has made it clear it does not want to be changed and it's it's going to do everything it can to make sure that it never is changed by anyone now now this is just you know something i saw people talking about but it but it causes me to 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 ask you know where is the real the real grassroots the real work for People struggle. Where is that really happening? And I see a hint of it, you know, in the organization for unions at Amazon, uh, in uh, the the union votes for Starbucks uh, and, and other union struggles going on around the country. But I also see it in an interview uh, that you did on Black Agenda Radio with uh, our friend Jeribu Hill. Uh, in the Miss uh, for the uh, Mississippi Workers Center for Human Rights, because there's a lot of labor organizing going on in the South, and a lot of that labor organizing is being carried out by Black folks and by Black women in particular. So, you know, what are your insights into what the larger progressive left, whatever it wants to call itself, however it wants to see itself, what are your insights into what they can learn from these struggles that are going on in the South. 
in places like the Mississippi Workers Center for Human Rights that they're they're just not getting right, Margaret. Well, as for Bernie, no, just no, <laughs> Bernie. Come on, it's uh, to your point. He um, is an anti-imperialist. He has even gone along. They tried to smear him with saying Vladimir Putin wanted him to win or some sort of craziness, and instead of saying that's BS, he joined in and you know um, uh, and uh, attacked uh, Putin. And he will always be a sheepdog. The late Bruce Dixon at uh, Black Agenda Report is the one who coined that phrase in regard to him. Sheep herding people into the Democratic uh, Party, despite the the electoral theft uh, against him twice. So I hope this is not true, and I hope he doesn't uh, bother um, again. Uh, he wouldn't even fight for himself. He talked about how Biden would make a good president. He liked Joe. And so it's like, really? Come on. So, no, no more Bernie. Um, but the people are showing the way. We've seen uh, the Amazon victory is huge. We are seeing Starbucks um, employees unionizing. Um, uh, and Jeribu Hill, her um, uh, the Center for um, Workers' Rights in Mississippi is doing, as she and others, doing great work organizing low-wage workers in that region. So the people have to look to themselves. Uh, even the unions couldn't uh, organize Amazon. It took uh, uh, Christian Smalls and, uh, and uh, others who uh, just decided to do it. They, you know, people told them they couldn't and you need a big union to do it, and they did it. And that's the most important thing. And I know Bernie Sanders was uh, here in New York at a rally with the Amazon workers yesterday, and I guess that's okay, and AOC showed up, whatever. Uh, they need, frankly, Smalls more than he needs them. He mm. showed that um, uh, expecting um, the electoral system to help is... is uh, a waste of time, and he showed that the, what the people can accomplish when they um, take care of the people's business. So I think that's the most. Yeah, and, and I, I do see once again, you know, this this kind of uh, fawning over celebrity that 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 folks do. And I and I guess I, I shouldn't I shouldn't be too hard on people because that is kind of the the society we live in, where you know. I you and I can say something and and, you know, it's just these two people who who are they. But as soon as, you know, a celebrity says the exact same thing, then it's the gospel truth. <laughs> and, it, and it's it, it's it's kind of maddening that celebrities rarely ever say the right thing. I was kind of looking on Twitter and, and, you know, I'm not trying to make a plug for this guy. I don't like Twitter, by the way. It's just, that's just, it's just not my thing. I just, I don't like little short bursts of thoughts. I I have a hard time thinking in 138 characters. It's, it's very difficult for me, but I mean, it, 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 it's wild to me that Ryan Knight has a better take on politics than practically any other quote unquote celebrity out there, but you don't see too much excitement around him. But I guess it's because his politics are all wrong. You know, so so clearly this is an issue as far as celebrity culture is concerned, that you have to be a celebrity, but you also have to be a celebrity who carries the water of the oligarchy. And I and I and I feel like this goes right back to the beginning of our conversation, Margaret, where we're talking about social media and uh, influencers and how 
this administration in particular is using influencers on social media to push a narrative about not just this war, but about this system that people can feel in their very being is wrong and untrue. Because I'm sorry, you can't live in a country with almost half the people living at or near poverty and believe all 140 million of those people are lazy and and don't deserve a better way of life. I think people are waking up to the realization that something is very wrong in this country, that they're being lied to by someone. But I think that we have become so deeply uh, integrated with social media and its over-representation, its ubiquitousness in our lives that instead of critical thinking, we, we get all our information in 138-character tweets or in a seven-second TikTok video. And as great as those mediums are for conveying high-level ideas, there's nothing, nothing that... Uh, takes the place of serious critical thought, deep engagement with complex issues, reading, study, and being in organizations where comrades can guide you through to the truth. But that's why we're here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik. And we appreciate you hanging with us, but we are out of time. We're going to leave it here for today. We'll be back tomorrow with a whole new slate of shows. Until next time, peace. By any means necessary.